Welcome to the Christmas at Kenosha City Church podcast. This message reminds you of incredible promises foretold by God. Enjoy the message. Now, when we think of the Christmas season, all right, I'm not saying Christmas Day, I'm not saying, uh, you know, Christmas Eve, but I'm about the Christmas season, you know, the thing that starts for some of you the day after Thanksgiving, for some of you it starts at, literally after Halloween, right, the Christmas season. When you think of the Christmas season, what's the first thing that comes to your mind, all right? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the Christmas season? Uh, for many, it's a packed calendar. How many of you have already looked at your calendar and like, Oh my goodness, if I have one more thing to put in this calendar, I'm going to freak, right? I'm just, I can't, I can't do this anymore, right? But in a couple of weeks, I could ask the same question and some of you are like, if I have one more cookie, I say please, you bet, but some of you are like, I am not eating any more cookies, right? Some of you, you think of the first thing you think of this season is the presents you have to buy, all right? My daughter discovered the Amazon wish list this year, all right? She went crazy with it all right she she wants an axolotl so how you say it stuffed animal all right i don't know how animals get popular all of a sudden she, she's like i want an axolotl uh, a lotto sounds like it's like is that a coffee what is that all right and apparently it's this smiling animal and all the kids it's all the rage right now even though they've been around forever right and so when she went to her amazon wish list she didn't want just one there's literally like 12 of them all right so alice and i literally have to have a meeting to figure out okay did you buy one did i buy one because we don't want 15 Amazon boxes showing up with the same stuffed animal, just a different color. Um, I remember, for those of you that are, that are just a little bit older, this Amazon wish list thing, I'm like, just bring back the Sears catalog, all right? Just get the pen and just circle everything, right? Then you show, yeah, some of you are clapping on that, right? And you, and, you, and you show, I didn't know that, amen, right? So, and then you, then you show it to your mom and they're like, and they just smile at you, like, uh-huh, right? Now it's dangerous because these, the, the, you just don't circle things. You get the Amazon wish list and you can buy these things and then boxes show up at your front door. It's bad, all right? It's bad. Just bring back this year's catalog, right? All right. Glad I got an amen on that. That's, that's wonderful. No other holiday, though, do we in a season try to pack in so much. Do we rearrange our whole house? Did you realize that? Do you ever, in November, like, why every year do I rearrange my whole house? You rearrange your whole house and everything's awesome if only everything on the calendar and your checklist and your gift list goes according to plan. How many of you does it absolutely go according to plan? None of us, right? I'll tell you when it's over. It's over on November the 10th for me when I'm putting up Christmas lights. And you think I would get this, right? You think I would understand this. But in my previous house, I'd have to actually go on the roof. Now I'm on a ladder. But I'd have to actually go on the roof. And I would never check the lights before I'd put them all up on my house. It's cold. Your hands are numb. You're like, okay. I got the lights up, kids, right? You're, 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 you're slurring your speech. It's so cold outside, right? And then you go literally to light up the lights and just like Chevy Chase, the little lights aren't twinkling because half the strand is out. I'm like, why didn't I check the lights? I'm done, all right? Half the lights are up, enjoy them, right? I'm done. Some of you are done before it's even December 1st. I love this year, actually. But the stress can get you. The stress can get you. To where you're like, I'm just through. Some of you are here today, and 2023 has been an accumulation of hardship. 
It's been an accumulation of letdowns. Some of you, it's been the best year ever. But speaking to the person that is heavy this morning, there's maybe been a relational breakdown. Maybe there's been deaths in the family. Maybe there's been things that you thought were going to happen. They didn't happen. And maybe you're disconnected this morning, even from the ideal of Christmas, because You've approached Christmas just in the pomp, but the, the, any, anything that's sacred about it, the, the religious side about it, the God side about it, you just feel disconnected. And maybe you feel disconnected because this baby in the manger has been irrelevant to you. He's been irrelevant to you because maybe the baby in the manger who you know is Jesus uh, has let you down in your prayers. You don't understand why he acts the way that he acts. And you just feel disconnected as a result. What I want to say to you, and I, I, I don't think that you'd, I, you would think I would say this any differently because I'm a pastor and we're in a church, but I want to declare it because it's real, is that God is real. He's real. This, I don't want to waste my time putting up lights that don't work. I don't want to rearrange my house and buy five uh, Axolotl toys uh, for nothing, Right? We sometimes have to pull back the layers of the season to realize, hey, these layers aren't necessarily bad, but we can't forget about the core, which is good, and that's we have a good God who is real, who wants to meet us in our hurt and in our pain. He's our creator God, whose hallmark of the creation was human beings to reflect his goodness and his likeness. God created you to not just know about things about him, not to just come to him at Christmas and Easter and be dubbed a creaster. No, he wants you to know him personally every day of your life. God created you not just to know about him, not to be somewhere out there while we do our thing. God created you. He knew you before you were even in your mother's womb. He knew you when you were born. He knows all the hairs on your head. He knew you. He wants you to know him personally to enjoy the greatest good and joy you could have, and that is knowing the Lord God Almighty. You were created to know God. But something's gone wrong, terribly wrong. And you don't have to Google it to figure out what's gone wrong. Amongst all the joy and the mountaintop experiences, we are made painfully aware at some points in our life of the valley floors. And it's in those moments we realize this world is broken. And it's broken because of our sin. And our sin has separated us from the, the goodness of God. It's not that God is, is distant, but that our heart has drifted. I want you to know when God seems distant, it's not because God is busted. It's our perception is busted. It's, it's that our hearts are weighed down. It's that maybe we are in situations that we shouldn't be in. God is distant because of our sin. Not because God is distant, but because we have distanced ourselves. And I want you to know today... The remedy isn't trying to get yourself back to God because when you're separated, it's a chasm that's way too long for you to climb into and climb out of or jump over. You need a holy intervention, and that is exactly what Christmas is all about. So what we're going to talk about in the series uh, is something that, that no religion, no hobby, no distraction, no numbing, no drug, no earthly relationship will fix. It's an out-of-this-world divine intervention. God doesn't have to intervene, by the way. 
But what we see here in the Christmas story that leads up to the Easter story is that God chose to intervene because of his great mercy and love for his creation, his, his chief end of his creation, that is humanity. He wants to rescue us. And that's what Christmas reminds us of. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to start off here, and we're going to be all over the place this morning. But this is our anchor text, I guess you could say, our, our, our foundational text. Matthew chapter 1, verse uh, 18. You can turn there in your Bibles or our Kenosha City Church app. All right, verse 18. The birth of Jesus came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before uh, they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken about by the Lord through the prophet, verse 23. See the virgin, this is the prophecy, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they'll name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the Christmas story that is preached every year. And it, become, and it can become so familiar that even when I was reading this, we begin to wander. Now, if this is brand new, you might be like, oh, wow, this is, a, this is part of the story I've never heard. But if you've been in the church world for more than a second, some of you may have begun to wander when I read that, Right? And I, okay, I've heard this before, but you know, the reason why we go back to this each and every year is this is such a pivotal moment in our history that if we forget this, you can begin to build anything else that you want in your life, but it's going to have a, a creaky foundation because you're forgetting why we're here and we're forgetting why we have hope. It's important for your life now and your life forever to understand not just the birth of Christ, but the links of, of how God went to rescue you to open the door for you to be right and in a real, reliable relationship with Christ. The Christmas story is a reminder that God made promises for you and he made promises for, for me as well. He made promises for all of us. And so I want us to look at this afresh this morning. Like it's the first time you've ever heard this. We're gonna go through this narrative deeper throughout the next few weeks, but a quick overview of what we just read Mary was engaged to Joseph. Engagement in the days of Jesus was a legally binding agreement. Today, when a person gets engaged, uh, they get a, the, uh, usually the, the girl uh, will get a ring, right? And then they'll start, uh, they'll start putting reservations in banquet halls. And so if an engagement ends, and I've seen this before, uh, usually uh, the banquet halls will be canceled. You'll lose your deposit and the ring goes on eBay, all right? So uh, that's what happens. And not so much in Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, uh, when an engagement ended, it literally was legally binding. You had to get a certificate of divorce and it was it was it, it was shameful uh, uh, it was it was something that people didn't want to go through and so we see here Joseph being a righteous man I uh, wanted to do it quietly we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks some of those ramifications 
And so you can imagine when Mary uh, said she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, Joseph was like, uh-huh, right. So uh, better call a lawyer, all right? Again, we'll talk more about the ramifications of that in a couple weeks. But notice before Joseph could do anything in his human understanding, before he could end the engagement, uh, a divine intervention occurred. Joseph fell asleep, and in that night, the Lord sent an angel to speak to him about the plan of God. And the angel actually reiterates a previous scripture, a previous prophecy to remind him, this prophecy is coming true. Matthew 121, she will give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, here it is, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they'll name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The angel is appealing to a predictive prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. This prediction in Isaiah 7, 14 was about the coming Messiah. What we see in Matthew is this is being fulfilled in Jesus. The Messiah has come. So this predictive prophecy in the book of Isaiah, some seven centuries prior to the birth of Christ, was proclaimed that a Messiah would come. And by the way, we have manuscripts that date hundreds of years before Christ that has all of these prophecies in it. Someone could say, well, someone must have written that later. Well, guess what? We have, we have dated manuscripts, secularly dated manuscripts that show that these prophecies are in here hundreds of years before even Christ. This prophecy happened 700 years before Christ, and we see that Christ is fulfilling it. Now, when Isaiah gave this prophecy, let's give some backdrop to this prophecy, okay? When Isaiah gave this prophecy some seven centuries before Christ, uh, it was in a season of Israel. We've spoken about Israel quite a bit as of late. It's when Israel was broken into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom had fallen in perpetual sin. In fact, they were taken to exile first uh, by the Assyrians. Uh, Judah would fall in, uh, would, would go back and forth. Uh, they'd have a good king, they'd have an evil king. They'd have a good king, they'd have an evil king. Uh, in this moment where Isaiah is giving this prophecy, the Lord sent Isaiah to confront Judah's leader, Ahaz. Ahaz was not trusting the Lord. Uh, this is interesting because his dad, Uzziah, uh, was not only a great leader, but he feared the Lord. He trusted the Lord. So his son, uh, did not follow in the footsteps of his father. We see this often where nepotism goes wrong. So the king of Israel and the king of Syria during this time, the northern kingdom and, the, and then Syria next to Israel, we can see these on the map even today, in today's map, uh, it, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, they were going to join in a coalition to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah and specifically eradicate the line of David. And so, of course, this had to be frightening to King Ahaz, especially since he wasn't trusting in the Lord. It's like, oh my goodness, someone's going to wipe out the line of David. So Ahaz would naturally look to other ungodly alliances to face this threat from Israel and Syria. And Isaiah warned Ahaz, don't try to face this threat with ungodly means. I think we can learn a lot from that even in today's culture. Even Christians fall into uh, to wanting something and they use ungodly means to get to it because they feel like they're a Christian. They can do whatever they want. Eh, wrong. We see this right here. Do not use ungodly means to face a threat. Trust the Lord. And so we see here uh, that Ahaz ultimately didn't listen to Isaiah. But Isaiah's proof is this. Isaiah says, you could trust the Lord. Do you want to know why? Uh, because out of the line of David... 
the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is not going to come from the northern kingdom. It's not going to come from Syria. It's not going to come from any other nation. He's coming from Judah. He's coming from the line of David. Trust the Lord. They're not going to eradicate you. But yet, Ahaz compromised. But what's important that we see here is that centuries prior to Christ, Christ was predicted. Hope was predicted. And this is our main idea this morning. His past promises, and we're going to see a bunch of them this morning, his past promises is your glorious future. His past promises is your glorious future. God is a God of promises, and he keeps each and every one of them. Do we believe that, church? That's something that Christmas reminds us. We, we may ask for a present, and we don't get it. I can tell you countless things I asked my parents for, and I never got it. It's okay. All right, so, but the promise of Christ Every single promise that we have in scripture, it is signed, sealed, delivered. And what we see here is his past promises is your glorious future. And today, we're going to spend the rest of our time seeing the proof of the promise of Christ, that he's indeed God, and that indeed he's a promise keeper and he has promises coming, all right? So number one, his promises began when? They've always been. God is a God of promise. He's been promising the moment he's been dealing with humanity. Now, growing up, uh, my grandparents, I, I, I had a great relationship with both sets of my grandparents. My grandpa and Grandma McGowan, my grandpa and Grandma Allard. I had great relationships with them, but they, they did presents a little bit differently. One set of the grandparents would give me cold, hard cash for Christmas. Oh, yeah. Do I know why I love that? Because I could go to Walmart and buy myself a Nintendo game, all right? All right? Mario 3, here we come, all right? So, but my other grandparents, <laughs> they didn't like Nintendo, all right? So what they did is they would give me savings bonds, all right? Did people even give those out anymore? I don't know, but savings bonds. Every year from the moment I was born and they were still putting punch holes with, so computers would read the punch holes. I'm really dating myself here, right? All right, to the days where it looked like a check, all right? I got savings bonds. I received savings bonds and I would look at them. It kind of looked like money. It said it was money, but it wasn't quite good yet to use. And I'm like, ah, a deferred gift. Yeah, you'll love it when you're graduating high school. I'm like, uh-huh, I'm 10, all right? So, like, like it, was a it was a present, but it was a promise. It was a promise that this will be worth its full value in due time. Now, when I graduated high school, I had forgotten all about them. They were in a safety deposit box. And then when I graduated high school, I had the moment. Ooh, wait a minute. The safety, those bonds, Right? Those, those bonds, right? Those, those safety bonds. Uh, the, the, uh, okay, all right. Uh, I, I'm going to go catch them, right? And I looked at them, and they were mature. So I sent them to the bank, and they cleared. My safety bonds cleared, right? So anyway, I used them to buy my first textbooks, all right? But the thing is, when they came to, when they came to maturation, these safety bonds, these, these savings bonds, whatever they, call, whatever they called them, um, they were worth everything they said they were worth. Now, with Christ, he's been given promises since the beginning of history. And some of the promises have been fulfilled. Some of the promises we're seeing fulfilled. Some of the promises are yet to be fulfilled. But I want you to know right now, whether, they, whether it's come to maturation or whether it is still coming, I want you to know they are worth the full value of the words of how, of how God spoke them. 
And I want you to know the promises, the predictive promises of Christ came to full maturation in the manger as Christ came to this world. The Lord promised salvation from the very beginning of time, and at Christmas time, the promises began to be, show up in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. You see, the gospel of John begins the story of Jesus way before any of the other gospels. All the other gospels start right around the manger. The gospel of John starts before time. It starts in the beginning. The last time we see that phrase, in the beginning, is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What we see in John chapter 1, verse 1, is in the beginning. You see, often we think of Jesus uh, beginning uh, his existence in a manger or in the womb. It was none of that. Jesus has always been. Jesus is part of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet one God. Psh, blows our mind, right? Jesus has always been and he is in the spot of where he was even active in creation. He was active in the creative purposes of this world. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was not created. He's always been. He stands outside of time and yet he's so full of love and mercy he came to stand in our time. Paul told the Colossae church in Colossians 1.17 uh, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. Oh man, underline that, highlight that, write that down, remember that. God just didn't create the world. He just didn't wind it up like a clock and walk away and say, see you when I come back, right? No, what we see here is that God created the world. Uh, he, he created the world. He's actively holding it all together. He's holding all things together. The law of physics, he's holding together from the atomic motion to the stars in the sky to the rotation of the earth, which is 67,000 miles an hour. Uh, he's holding it all together to the speed of light, which is 671 million miles per hour. He's holding it all together. He's holding it all together from your heartbeat. He's holding it all together with your very thoughts and the very breath that you take. He is holding it all together. And yet, have you ever thought, what if I just spontaneously combusted, right? <laughs> what if things just stopped, just started disappearing or turned to ash? Why doesn't that happen? Why doesn't the earth just go, to screeching halt? Because God is the God that oversees physics. He oversees the very motion and plans and purposes of this universe. We see very clearly, clearly here from Scripture, not only did he create it, he holds it all together. When it seems like life is unraveling, and there's times it seems like life is unraveling, remember the God who is holding the smallest particles together and keeping them in motion is holding you together even when it seems like everything else is going crazy. 
We have an amazing God who wants a relationship with us. Not because he's lacking anything. He is whole in himself, but yet we are the ones lacking. And when we go to God, we go to the one who we were made for. He is holding all things together. Don't you think for a second if things are spiraling out of control, the wheels are falling off, that somehow you can do it yourself. No, that just causes things to go crazier, right? We need to go to the one who is holding all things together, right church? And as I mentioned earlier, sin separates us from God. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God, and as a result, death, both physical death and spiritual death, without a remedy, we are destined for an eternity of pain and suffering apart from Christ, a place we talked about, uh, and boy, is it getting online chatter on YouTube right now. Holy smokes, like, there's like, Anyway, uh, but, but we talked about hell for a, for a whole, whole session, and it's, it's, it's one of our higher-viewed messages on all of YouTube right now, and, uh, but it's because it's so controversial, but it's so real. And without, without a remedy, we spend an eternity away from Christ in a place the Bible calls hell. We need a rescue, and the Lord is at it. You see, what we see here is when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and again, uh, when uh, we... When sin entered the world through every human being, the Lord immediately came to say, this is what's going to happen, but it came with a promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the very first, we're three chapters in, we're literally a couple verses after the fall of, of humanity, and God is not only saying, whoa, you're all going to physically and spiritually die now, but here comes a redemptive promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first gospel promise we see here. Jesus talking, uh, talking to Satan, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking of Jesus. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first mention of the Messiah. Notice verse 15, that God will strike the head of Satan. Yet Satan will strike his heel. You know, it's kind of like the dog that kind of nips at your ankle, right? He's going to cause problems. He's going to nail Jesus Christ to the cross. But Jesus Christ is going to be victorious on the cross. He's going to defeat sin and death. He's going to resurrect from the dead. He's going to empower the church and give the Holy Spirit to the church. He's going to come back for the church. Satan's a defeated foe. Oh, yes, he might be nipping at your heels. But I want you to know what we see in the very first gospel promise and prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 is is that Jesus is going to crush his head. Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. You may be struck with adversity. Hard situations in life, they may let you down. But Jesus reminds us, even in the Gospels, in this life there will be trouble. But he goes to prepare a place for us. You may be struck with things this morning, but in Christ, you are not crushed. You're not crushed because of Jesus. Satan and his ways are defeated. He is already defeated this morning. I know that you're like, man, I just feel like I'm getting attacked. I, you may be getting attacked, but he's defeated. And listen, Satan knows that he's defeated. And because of that, he's all the more dangerous. Because when someone is evil in their heart and they know they're defeated, they're going to take as many people down with them. So I want you to know today, in Christ, you are not crushed. 
You are not defeated. You are not a victim. In Christ, many of us, we need to stop walking around with our heads low and thinking, oh man, this person did this to me. This person said this about me. Or I didn't get the promotion. Or this, I didn't get this. I didn't get that. Woe is me. Stop. That's not your identity. There's a moment to weep and mourn, but a lifetime of weeping and mourning is robbing you of the joy that you're to have in the morning each and every day where you could say, great is his faithfulness. You are a victor, church. Your life is not about the worst thing that has happened to you or could happen to you. In Christ, we're not to have a victim mentality or an earthly mentality. We're to have heaven's mentality. And that's about what God has done for you and through you, even the hardest situations. Through Christ, he takes us who are dead spiritually and he makes us alive. And we know this because of the promises that he shares in scripture, the promises we see that have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled. Jesus is fully God who's come to this earth, fully God, fully man, 2,000 years ago to take on flesh, to take on the sins of the world. And we know this because from the Old Testament to the New, is littered with the promises, predictions that are coming true over and over and over again. Number two, so his promises, number one, his promises have always been. Number two, his promises are proven and true. They're proven and true. You know, conservatively, it has been estimated that Jesus has fulfilled 300 prophecies found about him in the Old Testament. Some people say even more, but we're just gonna go with the conservative number, all right? One where it's like, this is without a shadow of a doubt a messianic Christological prophecy, all right? There's 300 of them. Uh, and one of the main uh, prophecy of these 300 is the virgin birth. So let's take a look at the virgin birth. Why is that significant? Because I'm hearing people today say, ah, the virgin birth doesn't really matter. It does matter, all right? Virgin birth, let's take a look at this. It was predicted in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. We read this earlier. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. We see this again fulfilled in Matthew 1.18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it's discovered before they came together, that's before they had relations together, that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Uh, parallel account, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I'll read this to you. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged uh, to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. All right? And so we see here that Mary is still a virgin even after the birth of Christ. Now, Jesus could have come in a number of ways. If Marvel was writing the story of Jesus, uh, the clouds would open up. There'd be pillars of lightning over New York City, and they'd say, Jesus has arrived, right? Like, and he'd have a cape, and he would, he would come, and he would, you know, take names and destroy Thanos or something, right? That, that, that's that's, <laughs> that, that, that's oftentimes what people think of superheroes, but Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, creator God, came in this world in the most humble way. He came in a manger, not to judge yet, he will, the second coming, but to save. But to save. Many people have attacked the idea of the miracle of the virgin birth. Um, some people are like, well, you know, the, uh, the Greek word, or, you know, or even the Hebrew word, it just means a young woman of marriageable age. And so she might be a young woman, she might be a marriageable age, but that doesn't make her a virgin. Well, here's the deal. When people use this term, 
especially in antiquity, okay? We're placing a modern understanding on this word when we think that way. In antiquity, if you're a young woman of marriageable age and you're called a virgin, that means you're a virgin, all right? Um, they had other names I'm not gonna go into that they would sometimes, I, I think, painfully place on uh, women in that culture uh, that were, weren't virgins when they should, when they, uh, before marriage. Um, but Mary being called a virgin meant she was a virgin, uh, another objection here uh, is like, okay, this story was just completely made up. Fine. All right. You want to say she's a virgin? That's fine. Another objection is like, you just made this up. You just borrowed from other pagan uh, stories of, of gods cohabitating with women. Uh, but this falls apart rather quickly. Uh, the, the stories of gods cohabitating with women, number one, are, are made up stories, Okay. We're talking about here a historical fact, but let's take a look at these stories. Uh, these stories of gods cohabitating with women, these are stories of lust and indecency, uh, not a holy moment, all right? Uh, in all the pagan stories, when a false god had relations with a woman, the woman was no longer considered a virgin after. Uh, to the contrary, what makes the story of the virgin birth so different is the Holy Spirit is the one that provides a miracle in Mary that allows her to be with child, with human DNA, uh, from his mother, yet have full divine nature without a sexual union happening. This is a miracle, all right? It's a miraculous moment that brings the Savior into the world that allows the Savior to indeed have a direct lineage from the Davidic line of Israel, as the prophecies say, and yet be fully God without a sin nature. The Savior was prophesied hundreds of years prior to be born of a virgin, and on Christmas Eve, we celebrate this historical miraculous fact. So, the born, he was born of a virgin. We see here also the promises are proven true because he was born from the lineage of Israel. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. I'll put it on the screen. This is God speaking to Abraham in the inauguration of the nation of Israel. He says, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offsprings will possess the city gates of the enemies. And the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Some of your translations say your seed because you have obeyed my command. Again, notice verse 18. All nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring or your seed. So there's already an anticipation, even before Israel exists, that out of you is going to come somebody who the whole world's going to be blessed by. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Jeremiah 23, 5 says this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch from David, he will reign wisely as a king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. Again, in our last few series, we've unpacked how Israel's purpose was to bring forth the reality of God to the rest of the pagan world. Well, they often mixed pagan ideas with their own and they fell into sin. They failed. And as a result, they were brought into exile. In fact, their exile, literally, they were off the map until 1948. Some of you were alive when this happened, right? So they went into exile. But yet when Jeremiah was speaking, Jeremiah was speaking to uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, in their waning days, just before they were exiled, uh, Jeremiah said this uh, to Judah. Uh, he, he gave a, a messianic promise. In fact, let's look at this again. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. He says, look, the days are coming. Whenever you see this phrase, especially in prophetic literature and scripture, look, the days are coming, it is a messianic proclamation. When people heard this, they're like, oh, they're talking about the coming Messiah. They're talking about the coming Messiah. All right, he says, look, the days are coming. A righteous branch from the line of David 
is coming. So just as Israel's already in exile, the southern kingdom's about ready to go in exile, Jeremiah is giving a promise. Out of you is going to come the Savior, not of a nation, but of the entire world. And Messiah is coming from the line of David. The prophets would speak five other times about this branch of David, prophesying the line of which the Messiah would emerge. So we see here the Messiah would be born of a virgin from the line of David, but we even get a prophecy of the exact town he's going to be born in. Micah 5.2. Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient of times. The Messiah would come from the clans of Judah, that is David, but now we see his place of birth, Bethlehem, a town six miles south of Jerusalem, which at the time of Jesus' birth was very small and insignificant. Again, uh, you would imagine if someone is thinking like, who do you think the future Messiah is going to be out of Israel? They might think, oh, surely he's going to come out of Jerusalem, right? No, he's coming out of a small, insignificant town called Bethlehem, uh, it was insignificant, at least in the time of Christ. God, speaking through Micah, states that the Messiah is also from antiquity, the ancient of times. So again, think about this. They're looking to the future for Messiah. They're saying, Shh, this Messiah, is, he's coming in the future, but he's from the ancient of days. He was in the beginning. He's the word. And the word is going to become Flesh. So we fast forward to the New Testament gospel account. We see Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the past. Matthew chapter two, verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born of the king of Jews? For we saw his star at the rising and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief of priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, they knew this because of Micah. Because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we see here that Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem. And we see here that Herod's like, summon some wise men uh, that, that, that know where he's coming from. Now, the wise men, you know, again, they're oftentimes in our nativity sets. They never were in the manger. We've spoken about this in the past, right? Uh, but they did show up later, and, and they were on a journey to find the Savior. How did they know the Savior was going to be born? Well, these wise men are, are, are magi or, who are from the east, which is modern-day Iran and Persia. Uh, we learn from the book of Daniel that magi or wise men, uh, magicians, uh, were, were very common in Persia, all right? They often used uh, magic that I would say was most likely demonic, Okay, but we see here that these guys got a hold of uh, the Old Testament scriptures. These guys got a hold of the Old Testament scriptures and they began to study the prophecies and they began to say, I think this is when the Savior is going to be born. This is where the Savior is going to be born. And they start on a journey and through the prophetic promises, they find them. How amazing is that, right? The prophecies of the Old Testament for the Messiah, uh, the, these prophecies was their GPS, his past promises is your glorious future. So uh, we see here that he, he's going to be virgin birthed. We see out of what line. We see what town he's going to be born in. We see that not only, uh, not only was he born from the lineage of Israel, but that he is born to take not uh, just be the savior of Israel, but he was born to take on the sins of the world. 
Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, we get this prophecy. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We went all stray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Now, for many, uh, Christmas by itself stands by itself. We think of, we, we, we sing the songs of Christmas. We sing the songs of little baby Jesus being in the manger. And for some people, their theology stays, uh, you know, six-pound, wonderful baby Jesus, right? <laughs> right? And the thing is, is that, no, the Christmas story is the beginning point of a lifelong mission that we celebrate the end, which is at Easter and Resurrection Sunday, right? And so oftentimes we forget this when we get, in, when we get so enamored by, by Christmas. Not only should we see a manger, but we should be thinking of the cross. We should be thinking of the empty grave. We should be thinking of his second coming. The God-man, Jesus, was born to die. Die on a cross. He came for the first time not to bring judgment, but reconciliation, fulfillment of all the glorious promises Jesus came to live to die, to stand in the gap, an eternal relational gap that without Christ, every single one of us would be doomed. Think about that. Every single one of us would be doomed without Christ. God could have come his first time, not as a baby, but as appeared as as full blown God, you know, he is full blown God as a baby, but you get what I'm saying, like, not a baby, that's what I'm getting at, he gets shown up as God the Father, right, we can't stand in his, in his presence, right, we can't, he could have just shown up and said, I've seen the sins of the world enough, but instead, he came as fully God, fully man, in a manger, said he has come so that you may be forgiven, Think about that. He came to stand in the gap. God, being so full of love and mercy, came to humble himself to live as a human being, fully God, fully man, to be mocked, to die the most shameful death, nailed naked on a cross, insults being thrown at him, people spitting in his face, the cross that was meant for the most horrible criminals. Jesus did this for you and me. The prophet said how Jesus was going to be born. The prophet spoke on how he was going to die, even crucifixion. Psalm twenty-two sixteen speaks of the crucifixion. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. This prophecy, oh man, is that a clear prophecy or what? This prophecy through King David was written 1,000 years before Christ, before the Roman crucifixion, by the way, was even invented. Crucifixion wasn't even invented, and yet we see in this prophecy clearly not only the description of crucifixion, but the reaction of the people when Christ dies, when they divide his garments. In fact, Christ on the cross begins to quote Psalm 22. So we see here how he's gonna, the prophecy about how he's going to be born, how people are going to treat him, how he's going to die. Now, some of you might be saying at this point, okay, and by the way, we could, we could stay here all afternoon. There's, there's 300 of these, okay? I'm just giving you a cross-section, right? But some of you might be thinking, 
And if you're thinking this through, and if, and if church is new to you, if you're like, you're checking the things out with God, or you're online, you're like, yeah, you know, you know you're, you're, some of the, you're some of the universalists that have been, been fighting online, right? And so like, you know, you're, you're, you're checking these things out, and some of, the, some of the things that people say is, okay, I know that there are prophecies in the Old Testament, but I have, I, I have some objections. And the first objection I often hear is this. Jesus knew about the prophecies, and he sought out to do them all, to say, hey, I fulfilled all the prophecies, but he knew what he was doing. It's like, okay, okay. it's like a checklist, all right? Check, got to get people mad at me, check. Got to get crucified, check, right? Like some, that's what some people say this is what this is all about. Now, there is a prophecy in Zechariah where the Messiah rides in a donkey in Jerusalem. I suppose that Jesus could have read that and say, well, I got to get on a donkey and go to Jerusalem. You and I, we could go get a donkey and ride in Jerusalem and we could fulfill that prophecy, Right? There are some prophecies that I guess you could go back and look and say, oh, I could do that. But there are so many prophecies you have absolutely no control over, none. For a few of the prophecies, you may be able to you know, concoct, uh, but there are a number of prophecies that would be impossible for a person to say, I need to go do this. Number one, how you, when you're born, where you're born, your ancestry, uh, your method of execution, people's reactions to you, uh, uh, his, his resurrection, right? Uh, to name a few things, right? And so Jesus could not just seek out to do it. There are a number of prophecies that you have no control over that you would be able to concoct. Uh, there's just no way. And yet Jesus fulfills all 300 of them. Now, another uh, uh, another objection is that, well, Jesus just accidentally did it. I hear this often. Jesus accidentally fulfilled the prophecy just because he fulfilled them and he just accidentally did it. Well, where Jesus just happened to accidentally fulfill 300 prophecies, that's, I just want to say straight up, that's mathematically impossible. It has been calculated that for Jesus to fulfill just eight of the 300 prophecies, let's talk about eight of some of the very specific ones. We're going to say this in a way that I think makes math for most of us, okay? I know some of your mathematicians might not like the way I'm going to say this, but all right, here it is. One in 100 million billion, all right? Because there's just too many zeros if I say it the other way, all right? It's a lot. One in 100 million billion. That, is, that number is millions of times higher than the people who have ever walked the earth, okay? Peter W. Stoner said, said that if we were to fulfill 48 of the 300 the probability is a trillion times 14. A trillion, 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 trillion. What they're getting at is this. These numbers are just dumb big, right? It's like they're just, right? Blue screen of death big. It's because it's mathematically impossible. Let's just say it's impossible. God, Jesus couldn't just accidentally wake up one morning, well, I'll be. I, just, I did all 300 of these, or I did 48 of these, or I did eight of these. The reason why Jesus fulfilled these prophecies is because indeed he is the very Messiah the scripture spoke about. It's indeed because Jesus indeed is God and he's come to save the sins of the world. And how amazing is that God would give us his book, he'd give us his words that we can fact check. The receipts are right there that the savior of the world indeed is the savior of the world. How awesome is that? The prophecies must be fulfilled. Jesus just can't be a wise moral teacher because he clearly taught that he is God. 
If God is, if, if, if Jesus is not God, then he is a liar. He, he, he is, he is a, he's a snake oil salesman. He can't be moral. But Jesus is who he says he is. He is God. Don't we dare make him anything else. He is God. He came as Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, to stand in the gap that nobody or nothing else could stand in. Jesus loves you so much that he took every single one of your sins, every single one of your shame, these things that you're so just enamored with, he took them all because he loves you. No qualifications. He loves you. And your response is to receive the forgiveness. Last thing, and then we're done. His promises are coming again. His promises are coming again. You see, Jesus was predicted. Jesus delivered and fulfilled those predictions. And now we are living in a time that's called the church age, which he's given us the promised, predicted Holy Spirit to live in us, to do the work of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ must go out until Jesus Christ comes back. That's what communion reminded us this morning, right? And so here's the deal. Jesus Christ is coming back. There are promises that are yet to be fulfilled, but we know they're going to be fulfilled. He's done 300. Let's do another 600, right? God is going to fulfill them because he is God and his promises are true. John chapter 1, verse 10. When he, as Jesus, was in the world, the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Uh, may that be a warning for those of you like if God just does this or if God just shows up in this way or, or, or if, um, if I could just see Jesus in the flesh, then I'll believe in him. They saw him and they didn't receive him. You must have faith in Jesus. You must die to yourself and receive Christ into your life, all right? They did not receive him, but listen to this. Verse 12, oh man, this is so good. Verse 12, please underline this if you have your Bibles. But to all, oh man, everybody say all. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the, or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. The people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. How awesome is that, church? Is that awesome? You're, if you place your faith and trust in Christ, listen, this is where we respond, right? Uh, this is, if, if, if you place your faith and trust in Christ, like, you are considered sons and daughters of the king, right? Let the praise come out a little bit, right? Because everything hinges on this. Everything. That we are so lost without Christ. We are without a remedy. Because he came to this earth 2,000 years ago, in a manger, fully God, fully man, to save the sins of the world. Don't we dare ever make Jesus into something, anything else. He is not a social justice warrior. He's not some politician. He's not some revolutionary. He is Lord. And he came to save the sins of all mankind who place their faith and trust in him. He did not come with earthly solutions. He came with heavenly solutions to give us not an earthly mind, but to look at things from heaven's mentality that no matter where we go out to, what we're involved with, we bring heaven's mentality too.
Amen, church? Because for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I'll say this one more, one more verse, and then we're done. Jesus provided his gospel, but he provided us also a warning in Matthew chapter 24, verse 44. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So Father, we pray that we would live expectantly. Expectantly. In what you're doing in our life now, in your second coming, and who we can share the gospel with. Father, I pray for anybody in this room now that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would spend this moment and get right with you. In fact, as we continue to pray, I want to speak to anybody in this room now that if you were to stand before God and he said, why should I let you in the kingdom? You're like, I have no idea why he let me in the kingdom. I have no idea if I'm going to heaven. I want you to know right now, you can do business with God right now and get right with him. It's not about what you did or what you could do. Jesus did it all. He came in a manger to live, to die on the cross, to stand in your place, to forgive you of your sins, past, present, and future. We just take a moment right now and talk to God. Admit to him that you've sinned. Admit to him that you need a savior. Place your full faith and trust in him alone. Trust that his death on the cross is sufficient to save you from your sins. Believe that God rose Jesus from the dead, that Jesus is alive. We just spend time with him right now. Say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I want to place my full faith and trust in you alone. If this morning, that's you, like, I want to place my faith and trust in Jesus. He is indeed Savior. He's indeed God. And it demands a response. Jesus, I'm responding to you now. I'm placing my full faith and trust in you alone. If that's you, if you're trusting Jesus today for the first time, with every head's bowed and eyes closed, we just slip up your hand. We just slip up your hand right now and say, yeah, that's me. I'm placing my faith and trust in Christ alone. Awesome, I see you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Awesome. Anybody else? Awesome, I see you. Anybody else? This is your moment. You're just doing business with God. You're like, I'm doing it. It demands a response. So, Father, I pray for every single person that has said yes to you today. In fact, for those of you that have said yes uh, to Christ today, I'm going to pray with you. Uh, you can repeat with me. This prayer doesn't save you. Christ has already saved you. I'm just helping you talk to God, okay? Just pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've sinned. I realize I've done wrong. Thank you that despite that, you've come to rescue me. I place my full faith and trust in you alone. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for saving me from my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. Help me follow you now. Now, Father, I pray for the rest of the church. I just pray, God, that we would be people 
that would be hopeful this Christmas, that life would be different because we're fully trusting in you, and that we would encourage others because we've seen your promises lived out in Jesus' name. Amen. few things. Let's go to the take-home slide. You can take a picture of this if you want to. Here's your homework, all right? One through 10, how hopeful are you this Christmas season? Number two, how might life be different if you trusted fully in the promises of God? Number three, who can you invite to experience hope? And number four, who do you need to encourage this week, all right? Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.